Can you hear me now? All right. Well, um, and if it does and it becomes an issue and then we'll uh, jump right into it. I'm excited. We have a lot of, you know, stuff to talk about, especially, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's an understatement, um, you know, considering everything that's gone on since we last spoke. So I'm, I'm really excited for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. All right. Great.
All right, everyone. Let's uh, let's get started here a little bit a little bit early. I'm just kind of excited to to jump into this. Um, before I begin asking uh, Paul um, some questions, just want to do a little introduction to this podcast. Um, you know, I've been getting a lot of criticism lately on Twitter and other places because I don't take you know the mainstream narrative view. Right? It's very simple to. Uh, to say Russia bad, U.S. good, and and that's the end of it, and that's and that's the level of analysis people put into it. And if you want that level of analysis, you can go watch CNN, you can go watch uh, MSNBC, any of these other media outlets who are you know basically just pushing that narrative. Um, you know, in a way, they are enjoying what's going on because of their ratings. Everybody's glued to the TV screen. I mean, you know, when the invasion first happened, I was watching this, you know, with my jaw dropped for 24, 48 hours straight, almost watching everything that's going on, all the updates. And what I've started to notice is that um, the media is crafting a very uh, distinct narrative. And that narrative is, um, you know, Ukraine is good. Ukraine has never done anything bad. Russia is this evil um, dictator led by, you know, dictatorship led by Vladimir Putin, who is evil, who's crazy, who has lost his mind. And you basically pushing every citizen in the U.S. who's watching this to be anti-Russia and against Russia and wanting to go to war with Russia. And, you know, I want to be clear, I do not support what Russia is doing. I feel awful for the Ukrainian citizens, the Ukrainian people. Um, I think it's a horrible situation. Um, but as any of you know who've been listening to this podcast or my letters or following me on Twitter, I've been warning about this situation for months, and I've been doing everything I can to let people know that this, if things are not changed, this is going to happen. And unfortunately, what I assumed was going to happen, what I predicted was going to happen, what people like Paul have been saying uh, is a really bad situation um, has, you know, come to really the, the worst possible case scenario. And so, um, you know, this is an alternative media source. This is, we're going to discuss things today that, um, you won't hear on, you know, a mainstream media channel. And hopefully that's why you tune into this podcast, tune into alternative media sources to, to hear a more nuanced perspective. Um, I mean, I don't, uh, you know, besides COVID, I don't think I've ever seen, uh, a level of, uh, you know, t uh, team play by all these different media outlets to just kind of push the same narrative over and over again. And I think uh, that has had an influence on politicians. I think there's a lot of politicians who, have you know, their first instinct was correct to stay out of the situation. Um, it is basically a civil war. Uh, between Russia and, and, and Ukraine, Ukraine that's been part of Russia for a long time. You know, we don't need to go into the history just yet, but, but um, the initial, I think, reaction was to stay out of this. And I think uh, the news and the media and, and, and the way that this has been portrayed, obviously, it's a horrific situation, don't get me wrong, but I think the way this has been portrayed to the American public, who really didn't have much uh, education on this, has has turned, you know, uh, the political will um, against, uh, you know, against any sort of logic. I mean, I, I never suspected that uh, we would cut off the gas from Russia. We would be um, attempting to provide NATO planes to Russia through Poland. I mean, of course, I, I knew we would sanction, but this is, uh, 
you know, this is the, the, the amount of economic sanctions that we have taken against Russia is akin to economic warfare. And it is the equivalent of if when we invaded Iraq, if your 401k dropped to zero, you weren't allowed to buy a Coke anymore. You couldn't go to McDonald's. Your credit cards stopped working. I mean, that's what we're doing. The West is doing to uh, Russian citizens. And again, this is in no way to um, um, say what they're doing is acceptable. Not at all. Of course, war and death is never acceptable. And it's a horrible thing. And I wish it would end this second. But we have to face the reality that we're in here. And so I, I, I brought Paul on the podcast about a month ago and we discussed some of these things. You know, he was warning for a long time that this was coming and I was warning for a long time. And now it's here. And just the takes that I'm seeing from people and, and the media narratives are just they're just really, really uh, uh, grossly misinformed. And then they're basically propaganda at this point. So you have to take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt. And so I wanted to, to forewarn all my listeners, you know, Paul has a, a, a much different view on these things than uh, you may be used to hearing. And some of it may um, feel offensive to you, right, because he does criticize the U.S., the West, um, and, and he does not, you know, fall into the narrative of just, you know, Russia bad, West good, and sanctions good, and war with Russia good. He doesn't fall into that narrative. And so... I hope you all can, you know, I'm going to speak to him here in a second. I hope you all can take his um, opinions with uh, an open mind, a grain of salt. Some of it you may agree with, some of you may not. But that's why we do these podcasts to provide, you know, a more nuanced and alternative viewpoint uh, of what's going on other than what you can get on CNN and MSNBC. And again, if you want to hear that, that is totally fine. You can go turn on CNN and listen to it all day. You will hear the anchors say the same 10 words. You know, unprovoked invasion, uh, Putin is crazy, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, but if you want to hear a more nuanced version, if you want to hear what these sanctions may do to, to us, to the United States, to the West, um, you know, I hope you enjoy this podcast. And so with that, uh, Paul, are you there? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Presumably you can hear me okay. Yes, I, I can hear you great. What did you think about um, my introduction and what I just said? Absolutely, I totally agree. Look, I mean, I'm going to be very clear about this. All war is utterly abhorrent. I don't want to see a single drop of, in this case, Ukrainian, Russian blood, and all the various nationalities and the risk of people from all over the world who are either stuck inside Ukraine or trying to get out of Ukraine or actually almost held hostage in Ukraine, which is true in cities. There are people not being allowed to leave. And I know people inside Ukraine. I've known them for years, and they've told me that is factually true. So whether people in the West want to believe that or not is beside the point. But I want to make that point very clear. But what I would say is with regard to to why Russia has done what it's done. And we have to look at it objectively. This isn't saying we agree that Russia should have gone into Ukraine and declared war and, and all this idea it's not a war or it's not an invasion. It is a war and it is an invasion. But I'm going to draw a simple analogy to start with. Imagine if, for example, uh, 
suddenly, and it, it doesn't exactly work because this isn't how the Shanghai Cooperation Organization operates, but it's a good analogy. Imagine if Russia was threatening to uh, put missiles in Mexico and point them at the United States. It was saying it would might allow Mexico to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Now, rightly, the United States would have an aneurysm about this. And in reality, that is part of the reason why Russia is having an aneurysm. We can go through the history of where agreements were in place that you shouldn't keep moving NATO eastward, which the United States and NATO did. But it's been known historically for 20 years or more that Ukraine was always a red line for Russia. If you if you start to look like you're going to admit uh, Ukraine into NATO or you're going to put U.S. bases there and, and U.S. military personnel and missiles, etc., then that's a red line for them. And they would always go at some point. They would intervene. Now, there are other circumstances, and whether people in the West agree with this or disagree, there has been a war going on in Donbass between the Ukrainian army, and there are neo-Nazis there. This is irrefutable. I mean, people can sit all day and argue to the contrary, but it's true. And they've been fighting a war against so-called Russian separatists in Donbass. There's a contact line now. The war was horrendous in 2014 and 15. It sort of tailed off. It was still things going on uh, for a number of years. And then it's then it started to escalate in kind of January, February. There was clear evidence that the Ukrainians were amassing a whole bunch of forces on near the contact line and military hardware. Now, there has been subsequently other developments, and we'll come to this. The first one is that... Uh, the Russians made the point that if you, if because they were, from their perspective, aware of this offensive, now they produced what they are claiming. Okay, let's let's put it in that context. They're claiming they have documentary evidence supplied by the Ukrainians. I don't know whether there's a mole inside the Ukraine government or there's as they have taken over parts of Ukraine. The military have handed stuff over, but they said, look, we've got evidence that proves. There was a massive offensive going to be launched on Donbass in early March. Now, the interesting part about this is the West has not denied this. In fact, they've pretended it was never said, which you then have to suspect there is at least more than a grain of truth in the reality of that statement. Now, Russia's always made it clear that if, if there was to be this massive assault on Donbass, and we're not talking the shelling that was going on, which was bad enough and has killed, 13 to 14,000 people, a lot of them children, uh, innocent civilians who played no part in this conflict, but the West denied that ever happened, which is factually true. And I know someone personally who went in in 2014, 15 and was filming events. He was actually on the contact line, interviewed a whole bunch of people and told me about what was going on. There are I'm not going to get into all the speculation because there's all manner of reports about things going back in 2014, 15 that were absolutely horrendous that was going on there. But anyway, let's let's not get into that level of, of detail. But the point with all this was that there has been this ongoing conflict. Now, Russia made the point 
that if you if you harm anyone in Donbass, then we're going to take action. Now, okay, there's an argument they signed an agreement, and from the Western perspective, it was completely inappropriate to sign an agreement that recognised the independence of Lugansk and Donetsk from the West. That's completely unacceptable. Okay, that's fine. But they signed this agreement, and then one of the points in the agreement is, in the event of massive hostilities, we'll intervene. Now, some will argue that that was a pretext for Russia to go in. Okay, and, and that's not an unreasonable assertion to make. But the point is, Russia had clearly the evidence to, to back up the fact that there was a massive military offensive plan. So when the, the leaders in Donetsk and Lugansk said, look, we need your assistance, Russia went in. But there are other aspects to this, not just the, what's going on in Donbass and We've clearly seen where there was a lot of speculation in in the Russian media and saying about these biolabs. Now, the Western media said this is Russian disinformation. It's not true. Now, Wait, Paul, what? Paul, hold on, hold yeah. on one second. Let's uh, let's unravel that before we get into the biolab stuff, which just absolutely blows my mind. But before that, so. For anyone who's listening to this, for anyone who's who's doubting this uh, information, there is video. And, you know, this is not a conspiracy theory. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm I'm facts based, analysis driven person. There is video of Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator from South Carolina, in Ukraine in 2016. And you can Google this. You can look this up. It's all over the internet. Telling the Ukrainian people that this is the year that they, they go on the offensive with Russia. And basically they're in, uh, in Ukraine uh, supporting and riling up the Ukrainians, basically saying they need to go after these two independent or these two Russian, these two states that voted to be part of Russia, the, the Luhansk and the Donetsk regions of uh, uh, what they call the Donbass of, of Ukraine. So, so, Anyone doubting what Paul is saying right now, that it is factually true that the United States sent people, uh, senators in this case, Lindsey Graham, and I believe John McCain was there. Uh, I know he was there in yeah, 2013. John, yeah, John McCain was there at the same time in the video clip. Yeah, and he was there, and they were telling Ukrainian uh, military officials that they need to go on the offensive and get after Russia. So this isn't this – isn't, propaganda or conjecture this these things happen this is fact whether you want to believe it or not that's fine or you agree with it or not that's fine but i just want to get out there that what paul is saying about uh uh information about an offensive from ukraine towards these uh you know contested regions let's call them in in ukraine and russia um is, is factually correct and so paul i just wanted to to reiterate no, that's that before. Fine. i mean that, yeah. that goes back to 2016 they said launched major offensive in 2017. It never happened, of course, for a whole bunch of reasons, but that doesn't matter. So this has been simmering for years. I mean, this is not... Everyone knows the US has been providing, well, they called it non-lethal weapons, but, but the point about the bio-labs, now, the issue was the Western media said it's all disinformation. And then, in a congressional hearing with Rubio and Newland, Newland admitted didn't say the U.S. was involved in these labs, but admitted that these bio labs were present in Ukraine. And they were very concerned about the fact of, that these might fall into Russian hands. Now, here's the point. 
if these were benign labs, why would you be remotely concerned if they fell into the hands of the Russians? You'd be very concerned if they fell into the hands of the Russians if there was a whole bunch of things going on there that may be in defiance of the Geneva Convention. I mean, the Russians have come out with a bunch of statements with regard to what they said were all these kind of uh, programs for, in terms of bioweapons, etc., and and experimenting with all manner of things. To, for for example, they they came out with statements uh, about um, well, they've even made some statements about back coronavirus. But let's not I dread going on that path because I don't want to dig all that dirt up, but. They made a whole bunch of statements and they said there was anthrax involved and the plague and all these kind of things. So my argument to that is, okay, if that is true, you need to produce the evidence, rock solid evidence in front of whatever appropriate authority you may have to do so. Bearing in mind, you've got to be careful who you present it to because most of them are Western controlled. So therefore, there's a lack of objectivity from the West perspective. But They made a whole bunch of statements and they say they've got the evidence. Well, if they prove that evidence uh, to be categorically correct, then the United States is in one hell of a bad situation. And that's putting it diplomatically because they would have no way of explaining this away. They couldn't then go, well, it's nothing to do with us. We didn't know anything about it because they do know everything about it. So that remains the theme. And Paul, let's let's back up just so my uh, listeners understand what's going on. So um, for for a long time, Russia has been putting out statements saying that there are U.S. funds. And this, you know, I understand this sounds crazy, but this is actually true. And and you can look all of this information up. But the the Russia has been saying that there's been U.S. funded biolabs in Ukraine. When I heard this, I said, okay, they're just playing games, propaganda, it's BS. Then the other day, I forget what it was, either uh, uh, Wednesday or Tuesday, there was a, a hearing um, about uh, uh, U.S. concerns. There was a, a Senate hearing. Marco Rubio was there, a bunch of other senators. There was um, Secretary of State, et cetera. And Marco Rubio, I think, in, in an attempt to – um, give a softball question to 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 Nyland, this this uh, ambassador who has her own really scary history. But anyway, asked if there was any uh, bio labs or bioweapons in Ukraine, and she said yes, that we the U.S. has bio research labs in Ukraine. I could not believe it, and Marco Rubio, the senator, could not believe it either. And he was he he didn't know what to do. It looked like for a second he scrambled. Uh, well, if someone uses bioweapons in Ukraine, is it the Ukrainians or the Russians? And of course, I said it's definitely the Russians. But this is a real thing. And 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 my question is, why do we have biological research facilities in Ukraine? And there's about thirty of them. And so you know what the Russians are saying is not inaccurate here i mean may they may they may be taking the truth and, and extending it of course but but this was a real thing and i was shocked tucker carlson did a piece on it and that's what paul is talking about here just so anyone you know i wanted to give a little background in case anyone wasn't aware of this of what was going on and so and so paul again i didn't mean to cut you off i just want to make sure my listeners grasp what you're saying here 
Well, yes. The important point is, at this point, it's not clear exactly what was going on there. And as I said, Russia's unearthed a whole bunch of that. Well, they claim is evidence, and okay, that needs to be verified independently. But as I say, the fact the US, and I made a tweet on the 24th of February that said, from my perspective, the US is far more worried about the Russian invasion and declaration of war than Ukraine because it might unearth a whole bunch of ugly, nasty things going on inside Ukraine, which if were proven to be true, would blow up spectacularly badly in the United States' face. I'm sort of paraphrasing the last bit of the tweet because there's been lots of speculation for years about all manner of things going on there. But what this has done in, okay, the West is just trying to brush it off like it's nothing, but around the world, nations are now starting to go, hang on. So you're admitting there's something, but we haven't provided any detail. We want some explanation as to what is going on in these bioweapon research labs, whatever you say it is or not, and it's the silence. They've not come out and gone, well, these labs exist and, and these things were going on. But most certainly they're U.S. funded. I don't believe for one minute the United States isn't aware of what's going on there. Now, okay, at this point, we don't know. But the point about this is this puts a serious doubt of credibility on why the Western media claimed it was disinformation. And then it turned out it was the, it is the truth. To, and we have to unearth what that means in reality. But the other point is, why was, did Newland feel the need to come out and have to admit this? I mean, and that's not clear at this point in time either. Was there some coercive pressure from, from Russia who, through back channels, and I'm speculating here, through back channels would... Um, can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's some kind of question regarding was pressure put on on Yulin to say this and if who who was it back channels from Russia say we have evidence so you can't sit there and deny that this isn't a reality so rather than than having the Russians say more and more they came out and tried to deflect the problem away and then and then make the the, the very bizarre accusation well if anyone uses chemical weapons inside or biological weapons it's going to be rushed back to the whole this is the classic mo of the of the us when we go back to syria it's it's not there's a good point to make it in syria when assad okay the russians were in there helping him and the iranians were and everything else but assad it all but won the war in syria he had the support of the people the west claims that's not true but they did but he did because if he hadn't he would never have survived all the years he did as the president. And they were coming out making accusations and saying he might launch a chemical weapons attack. All those chemical weapons attacks happening and then framing Assad. So it's the age-old thing that when the U.S. prior to this came out and said, we have intelligence that suggests that, that Russia is going to launch chemical weapons attacks in Ukraine. There's absolutely zero reason why. Russia would do this. What? Absolutely no reason. What we're supposed to believe is, and it's very clear, Russia has gone out of its way to try and minimise civilian casualties, not blow the whole country up, destroy all the infrastructure. But in the process, they're going to launch chemical weapons attacks. Why? They have no need to. They're, they are surrounding uh, Kiev. They're surrounding Mariupol. 
they're surrounding Kharkov, major cities. They, whether whatever anyone thinks in the West, the war's not over. But at the moment, Russia is winning that war. So what? They're winning the war, and then they're going to launch a chemical weapons attack. For what purpose? And then we come back to the point Russia not only went into Ukraine and destroyed at least 13 of these bio uh, uh, labs. The other thing is they made a beeline for Chernobyl. Why? And other nuclear facilities, because they say, from their perspective, we're trying to protect them. And then the Western media came out and accused them of trying to shell a nuclear power station. Now, of course, that turned out it wasn't true. And in fact, what had been what had happened is there was a fire in an administration building on the site, which was put out, and the nuclear power plant was was perfectly safe. But here's the other point. Yeah, why and, would, and, Ru- why would Russia go in? No, but it's, hang on, Sack Russell, this is important. Why why would Russia go in to Ukraine? And blow up nuclear power stations, bearing in mind the radioactive fallout would engulf Russia. Why would they do that? They're not going to go in and launch a war in in Ukraine and risk massive civilian casualties in their own country. This is just nonsensical. There is accusations being made that uh, Ukrainian forces cut off the power supply to Chernobyl yesterday and that and that they're trying to launch provocations. And they're the ones, to, I mean, there's claims from the Russians that they found 80, there was 80 barrels or something or whatever of ammonia. And there was some provocation planned in Kharkov, which would be chemical weapons. Now, okay, again, that's their perspective. But we have to stack up here. Why would Russia want to risk a massive nuclear fallout that's would engulf Europe, okay, engulf Russia. There, there is no point. There is absolutely zero reason why they would do this. But I'm sorry to say this, and this might offend people, but from from the US's perspective, they don't care about what happens in Europe. Europe is all expendable. That's, I'm sorry, the truth. The, the Europe is a vassal state for the United States. So, if, okay, there's a risk of fallout could end up anywhere, but I lived through Chernobyl in 1986. I know what happened. We had nuclear fallout all over Europe. It wasn't too bad in the UK, but it was pretty bad in places. Of course, it's horrendous in the vicinity of Ukraine or in the vicinity of where Chernobyl is, which is why it's now all encased in concrete and whatever. So the argument is, who would justifiably want to make this happen? Who would want to see such an attack happen and then pin it on Russia. There's far more justification for doing that and pinning it on Russia than actually Russia doing it itself. That's just a statement of fact. That's not propaganda. That's just reality. Rather like if Assad's winning the war in Syria, which he was, why would he then go and launch a chemical weapons attack that could kill his own people? But who has more justification to want that to happen? the West or the United States does, because if they can pin a chemical weapons attack on Assad, that would give them some justification to go in as they wanted to and launch a major bombing offensive to try and remove Assad. The whole point of the Syrian war was to get rid of Assad, but we're not here to discuss why that was the case or discuss Syria. So these are very uncomfortable realities we have to face. And at the end of the day, this doesn't justify the war. It doesn't justify the killing of a single person, no matter who it is. 
whether it's a Ukrainian citizen, and bearing in mind in East Ukraine, there's a lot of Russian, ethnic Russians or Russian-born uh, people there who may have died. There are equally Russian military and Ukrainian military who all who have died, clearly. This is all utterly, 100% on all sides, totally regrettable. But what we're trying to do is explain from a Russian perspective why they have gone in and done what they've done. This doesn't justify it. It doesn't glorify it. The war should be over yesterday. But the problem you have inside Ukraine is, is Zelensky is not the president. And this is why we get these mixed messages. I mean, notionally he is, but it's very clear that, you, that there are far-right forces running the country. I mean, look at the situation where we had negotiators going in with the Russians from the Ukrainian side, and one of the negotiators came out, was accused of committing treason, and was shot dead in the street by Ukrainian, the SBU, which is the you know, intelligence services. That if that happened, there was no disputing it. Happened. And and Paul, and so Paul, let's uh, just I want to I want to yeah, cover yeah. some other things in depth here, and and I want to get to that. Um, first off, the, the, we were talking about the nuclear plant. I remember you know getting texts and calls, and oh my God, Russia is bombing a nuclear plant. There's going to be a fallout worse, ten times worse than Chernobyl, and all this stuff. And then it turned out it was just an administrative office was on fire. And my first thought was aligned with yours is. Why would Russia uh, launch artillery against a nuclear power plant that would create this fallout? It would kill their own soldiers and what they view as their citizens, right? They claim that Ukraine is part of Russia. So I thought this whole thing was either just a mistake or then it turned out to be uh, essentially all, uh, all, all BS. And what you're talking about with, uh, with uh, this uh, Ukrainian um, – negotiator who was shot in the street i mean this this kind of ties into my bigger theme is you know this has gotten no coverage no one talks about how they just brutally killed this guy for just a a suspicion of being uh, friendly with russia and it goes into my next question my next point with you is how is ukraine how are they i mean they have won under you know hands down the psychological operations war, the uh, uh, propaganda war. I mean, how are they able to have this narrative that's so in favor of Ukraine that hides any problems that Ukraine has? I mean, is it just Americans love this underdog story? I mean, what, what, how are they able to? Well, it's very simple. I mean, we've had, you know, a lot. I mean, it depends how old people are, of course, I mean, and who are listening. But there'll be people here who will remember the Cold War very clearly. Uh, some people from the 60s, 70s, 80s, until the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the Cold War should have ended. And it kind of did very briefly. And then suddenly the Cold War is supposed to have ended and NATO encroachment east into the Baltic republics and Romania, etc., Hungary, whatever. But the point is, so there's this ingrained kind of belief. And in in the West, there's a very ingrained belief that, uh, like you said in your introduction, that everything about Russia is bad. Putin's like, you know, demonized. And and therefore, it's not difficult because the Western media has a very powerful influence over a lot of Western people in terms of their perception of things. So when they're told Russia's done something, they they just believe it. They don't sit there and think, hang on, 
let me assess what I've been said. Let me look at the reality of this. I mean, for example, what, I mean, just going back a point towards like Chernobyl, why would Russia be guarding Chernobyl with Ukrainian forces? Bear in mind, not just Russian and Ukrainian forces. Why would they be guarding it to protect it and then cut off the power supply, which risks enormous problems with cooling rods and all the, the science behind what happens in nuclear power stations? There's no logic. It's absolute nonsense. You wouldn't do one thing, which the West freely admits they're controlling nuclear power stations. They're, they've kind of made a big deal about it, but they don't then ask, well, OK, if they're controlling it, why are they trying to destroy it in the same breath? This is where there's this lack of critical thinking in the West. It's just very binary. Well, Russia's done something. Oh, well, or someone's saying something. That means it's true. The other problem in the West is the West is just relying on what the Ukrainians are telling them. So Ukrainian intelligence tells the West and intelligence what's going on. And, and, the, and the Ukrainians are getting caught out in endless lies. I mean... Well, you know, totally debunked within 24 hours of the statements they're making. So there has to come a point where people in the West go, hang on, what is actually going on? I mean, if you if Russia's losing the war, like they're making out, why is Russia surrounding uh, Kiev? I mean, and this is the thing, the, the West's going, Russia's bogged down in Kiev. They're not doing it. They're bogged down. They can't, you know, they're basically admitting that Russia is surrounding Kiev, the capital city. And then in the next breath saying Russia's losing the war again, a bit of critical thought would make you go, hang on, you can't have, they can't both coexist. It's one thing or the other. And of course, they're not bogged down. They're just not going in and blitzing the city, which the Americans do routinely. I mean, look at Iraq. They carpet bomb the whole city and then marched in and, then, and, and it still took them three weeks to get to Baghdad. So uh, that's a different approach. This is modern warfare. Russia is not doing that. So there are all these contradictions, but it's very easy from a Western perspective because we've had years of political capital, years of or decades of, of the media uh, making all manner of accusations against Russia. And, you know, and, and therefore, it's very easy just to subvert people's mindsets. So it's, it's almost like a trigger as soon as you mention Russia or Putin. And people immediately go, get really angry and outraged. So you can tell people in the West anything. But the point is, it's all well and good them winning the information war. But they're only winning the information war in the West. Okay, and the reason they're doing that is because they think Western people will then go, well, it's justified. You can give them more powerful you know, arms. You can, yeah, we support you, you know, you know putting MiGs into Ukraine until the Pentagon went, hang on, we're not doing that because it, A, that it won't improve the defences of Ukraine because they admit as soon as the, these uh, MiGs enter Ukrainian airspace, the Russians will shoot them down. And the other point is it will accelerate and escalate the war. They're really worried what the, you know, the, the fallout might be and what how Russia might respond to that. But again... This is just stoking ideas in people's minds to justify the Western perspective on what's going on inside uh, Ukraine. So that's all it is. It's just, and so that's the only reason because at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact of what is actually happening in Ukraine. What is, what is actually going on? 
I mean, if they're surrounding Kiev, well, what does that mean? If they're surrounding Mariupol and making incursions into Mariupol, what does that mean? Why is there this big push to get a whole bunch of, of uh, volunteers? I mean, Zelensky's going, we want volunteers all over the world to come and fight for, for Ukraine. I mean, that's someone who does that. You do that from a losing position. That implies you don't have enough uh, military personnel to fight the Russians. Well, in reality, at the moment, if if you believe the numbers, Ukraine's military out, outnumbers Russia's by at least three to one. Well, that clearly isn't the case anymore if you're desperately begging people to go and volunteer to fight. And there's adverts out there where they're paying, they're prepared, the Americans are pre- prepared to pay $60,000 a month to get people to go and fight in this war. That's not done from a position where you're winning the war. And these that's what I mean. The detail's important. The context is important. And at the end of the day, the okay, there's another angle to this propaganda that if you, from the Ukrainian perspective, you don't have the propaganda saying we're winning the war, then a lot of the Ukrainian military will just throw their arms away and leave the battlefield and go home and say, I'm not fighting this anymore because we're just cannon fodder. I mean, quite a lot, I'm not saying it's a, in numerical terms what it is, because we don't know, but there is clear evidence of Ukrainian forces handing their arms over, signing agreements that they're not going to fight in the war anymore. Now, that might be only 5,000, 10,000, we don't know, but but it's happened. But if, if there's a perception in the West that Russia's winning the war and it was communicated, then you might get mass desertion. You could have... 20, 50, 100,000 Ukrainians just saying, I've had enough of this. I'm not fighting this war anymore. So, And also it's to keep the morale of the Ukrainian people up. Because there are, of course, people in Ukraine who are terrified of this Russian invasion because they um, they think that Russia could do all manner of unspeakable things to them because they're Ukrainians. So they're the motivations for the propaganda, but in reality, it changes nothing on the ground. Whatever's happening on the ground is happening. So winning the propaganda war, and it it's, might work with the West, it might work with Ukrainian people, but the rest of the world's going, oh, I just don't buy this. You know, I'm, We know that, 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 that what the West's saying isn't true. So it doesn't materially make any difference, and the big fallout for the West will be is if the war keeps progressing the way it is, then Russia will win the war. Is it a certainty Russia will win the war? Absolutely not. But on the basis that Russia wins the war, then the meltdown for the Ukrainian people, the meltdown for the West is going to be, hang on, but you told us this. And by the way, you said to us, you know, we we, we have to suffer a bit of inflation and some economic problems, but, you know, it's, it's like part of the, you know, we're fighting the war together. Almost let's rope the people in and, and, and claim, well, you have to suffer a bit of price inflation and some economic hardship, but it's all, you know, part of the war effort to defeat Russia. So, you know, if the war effort isn't defeating Russia and, and then the economic blowback, which is certainly self-evident, really spirals out of control and the West's got an enormous... Uh, sort of narrative problem to manage because people in the West are going to go, hang on, this isn't panning out the way you claimed it was. And of course, the bioweapon story, there is a lot more people in the West now going, well, I, d- I don't like Putin. I, in fact, they detest Putin. 
I'm not, but hang on, I'm not buying the Western narrative anymore. I mean, so the biolab story is is starting to make a lot of people think differently. Now, it doesn't mean they're all going to change their viewpoint. There's going to be people very, very hard lined on the side that I'm not going to believe a word that comes out of Russia or I'm not going to believe anything other than the mainstream media. And that's fine. That's up to people where they want to be. But there are more people gravitating to the middle and going, okay, there are two sides to this. There are, you know, this to this to this war, and we need to assess things differently. But what is very clear is that things like the bioweapon story is beginning to to in a way damage the Western narrative and and, and cast some doubt on the credibility because it was a big disinfo story, but now it's they've admitted it's not a disinfo story. So what else is reality that they're telling us is disinformation? And, and then also, you know, the flip side is the stories in Ukraine prove to be false. I mean, it's like they killed everyone on Snake Island and then all the military personnel were found alive. So these stories are starting to come out where there is disinformation and you can only keep the propaganda war up for so long. If there's big, huge, you know, you could driving the so-called double-decker bus through the through the narrative, and Paul, eventually and Paul. it changes perceptions of, amongst more and more people. And Paul, so yeah, and so I, that that I mean is 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 true, and I think people are starting to see that. I mean, you know, there's that famous quote that the first casualty of war is always truth. And so when this first happened, you know, I was seeing uh, the ghost of Kiev stories, the story about the Rus- the Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island saying F you to the Russian ships and then all being killed. And it turned out these stories were all just BS, right? They're Ukrainian uh, or Western propaganda. But I have a question for you. And this is going to be controversial to some of my listeners and some, you know, I've heard this floated around, but I think people are afraid to really ask this question, but on this podcast, you know, we, 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 we examine all sides. Um, and so my question really is to you, what do you think about the idea that this Ukrainian propaganda and the fact that Zelensky, uh, for, you know, his own safety reasons and for other reasons, doesn't want to give up and wants people to keep fighting and is essentially prolonging the war, which in the end, Russia will win anyway. But the, the question is how many casualties they'll suffer. And the, the, the the idea is that the longer Zelensky drags this on, you know, without abdicating to uh, Russian demands, the longer this propaganda goes on that Ukraine can win or is winning um, really is just leading to a worse destruction of Ukraine than if they just agreed to certain things. The average Ukrainian's life probably wouldn't be too much different. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, let's let's be I'm no fan of Zelensky, to be honest, but I don't think Zelensky's running the country. I don't even think Zelensky is in Ukraine anymore. But um, my point is, I think, even when there's a little degree of when you come out with Ukrainian officials coming out going, well, we, we need to discuss, okay, discuss neutrality. We need to discuss the issue of Crimea and Donbass. Or we need to, you know, some idea that there's a little glimmer of light that we that you know we might be able to sit down at talks and start to reach an agreement, and then literally twelve hours later, some spokesperson comes out and completely trashes this and goes, "Well, we're we're going to regain Crimea and Donbass." 
So I, I don't think Zelensky is in charge of anything. And but you're absolutely right. The situation is okay. Let's let's look at a number of scenarios. Let's just say Russia loses the war, then then the issue is that of regarding Russia's demands. Well, they won't even go away because Russia is still going to be adamant that all these things have to be in place in terms of neutrality. Even I mean, and that's a, a big assumption. They lose the war. The reality is, at the moment, they're going to win the war. So, if they win the war, what does this mean in reality? Well, the sooner you reach an agreement, the better, because the the longer the war goes on, the weaker Ukraine is, the weaker its negotiating position becomes, because arguably Russia can take more and more territory. Now, I'm not for one minute believe Russia intends annexing Ukraine or staying there. But in a general sense, you're weakening your position. Whereas if you sat down now and said, and Russia said, OK, and you can take it at face value, whether you trust Russia in what they're saying, but they've come out and said, look, if you agree to neutrality and recognizing Crimea and Donbass, and we demilitarize properly, indeed, the denazification of the call, it would stop fighting to, tomorrow or the minute we've agreed it and it's signed. But the other issue is, OK, that's one way of stopping the war. But the problem they then have to face is whatever happens to Ukraine, and I can't see how Ukraine as a nation will survive because not least what happens with Donbass, it's impossible. You know, you cannot have a situation where after eight years of war that somehow Donbass is going to forget about all this. So there's the east of the Dnieper. We don't really understand whether that will survive as part of Ukraine or become a federation or what may happen. But the issue is, from a Russian perspective, you could sign all these agreements and, and, and end the war. But the problem is you have the United States and its allies who may then suddenly go in three months or a year or six months well, we're ignoring that neutrality. It doesn't apply to us. We didn't sign the agreement. So we're back on to the whole issue of admission to NATO and putting missiles. And then we literally might run the risk of going through the whole war process again. So this is an immensely complicated problem. But absolutely, Ukraine would be better now reaching an agreement which would save lives inside Ukraine. Uh, from not all civilians, whether they're ethnic Russians, Ukrainians, or whatever they might be, it will it will stop the war. And and any one life saved is something we should be embracing. A thousand lives, a hundred thousand, whatever. I don't know. Of course, you can just magnify that that issue. But fundamentally, that would be a sensible decision. But I don't think, even if the Kiev, even if Zelensky was desperate for this. He's going to be allowed to do this because he is not in control of Ukraine. He's not in control of the, the policy towards this war. I think Washington is. I think Langley is. And anyone who doesn't know what Langley is, that's the CIA. I think they're the ones dictating policy, and he's having to do what he's told. And here's the point. You imagine we know for a fact someone was accused of treason and shot after a meeting with the Russians. Well... There's going to be a lot of very nervous people inside Ukraine and in government structure who are fearful that, well, if I show even a glimmer of light in resolving this problem with the Russians, I might be next who gets shot. I mean, that shows we call Ukraine a democracy. If that happened in Russia, there will be an absolute outrage. 
But it happens in Ukraine and the West goes, well, we're not even going to discuss that. That's just a minor problem. Let's just sweep that under the carpet and pretend it never happened. The truth is Ukraine is not a democracy. Ukraine is a failed state on every single level. The extent of what's actually gone on at this point, we can't quantify, but there is, it is at least economically and financially a failed state. It is massive corruption. There is all manner of absolutely horrendous things, human trafficking, organ trafficking, prostitution rings, mafia running the country, neo-Nazis threatening people. There's, I mean, I don't, I'll have to dig it out, but there was a clip and I tweeted it where the BBC of all people went in and did a documentary about the far right and what was going on. I mean, so there are Western things at some point when they've gone in and said, this is a problem. Okay. They might not have highlighted everything that's happened, but there was a recognition in the West that there were problems. And this is part of the reason why the West doesn't want Ukraine or Europe doesn't want Ukraine as a member of the EU. Why there is reticence to have Ukraine as part of NATO amongst many NATO allies, because they think that fundamentally they know the country's a failed state. And you're not going to want to admit a nation into your alliance or into the European Union if it's a failed state, because there are ramifications for that. So that's an extremely important point to make. So it's one thing stopping the war and how that can come about, but resolving the broader issues with Ukraine and, and reaching a situation where you're not doing the equivalent of putting missiles in Mexico and pointing them at the United States and putting Russian forces uh, in, in, in Mexico and building Russian bases in Mexico. And, and from the Russian perspective, the risk is you would therefore equivalently be putting nuclear weapons in Mexico. I mean, does anyone remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? The same principle, the U.S. rightly had an aneurysm. And we nearly had World War Three then, but fortuitously we didn't. So we have to put this in context. If the U.S. had this on its own soil, it would have been extremely angry and rightfully so. Well, there is vindication for why Russia feels this way. And this has been simmering for years. It's, it's, we've talked about the, the whole issue of the, of the Maidan in 2014. I don't want to go over that again because we're just repeating ourselves. But as ever, Ukraine is an immensely complicated, complex problem. And there are people in the West who've not thought this through. Never mind the issue of, of NATO and, or the, the admission into NATO or you know, putting Western military personnel in, into Ukraine or bases or troops or you know, the issue of Donbass and the complexity of that. There is also the issue that they literally in their infinite stupidity, sat there and went, do you know what? We will, we will sanction Russia into oblivion. This is what went through their heads. They went, we can do this. We know we can do this. And do you know what? There isn't going to be any blowback on us. There's going to be no effect. There's no counterparty risk in us trying to cripple Russia. So let's just push ahead. Let's not and, think and, about and this, Paul, move on mass and try and implement absolutely insane policy decision and paul so but before i dive into that and that's what i want to really dive into here is the sanctions i just want to say you know we don't get political on this show but 
you know, a lot of this stuff, I don't know if, if anyone remembers that when Trump was in office, he pointed out a lot of these things that you're saying that he tried to build an alliance with Russia. Uh, he didn't want to have any involvement in Ukraine. And regardless of what you think of Trump and his, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you think politically, rightfully, I think he was he saw a lot of this stuff. And that's why he got so much uh, pushback from kind of the fo foreign policy I don't know what you would call them, organizations in the U.S. that, you know, when he was trying to make friends with Russia. And so this was uh, something that, you know, he saw coming from, you know, and he was obviously privy to information that none of us are privy to because he was the president. And so that I found that was interesting. But you started to talk about sanctions and I wanted to to really focus on this and, and, and the idea of how this could blow back on us. But. I just want to highlight some of the sanctions that the West has put on Russia for this. And I want everyone to think of this perspective as if imagine when we invaded Iraq, these things happened to U.S. citizens. Right. So we have I have a, a little list here. So basically all technology uh, from foreign firms, Japan, U.S., Australia have been banned uh, in, in Russia. Uh, Russian aircrafts were banned from flying into the e U.S., EU, or Canadian airspace. Um, travel bans, asset freezes on certain uh, what they call Russian oligarchs, which is funny because we have oligarchs here in the U.S. as well. Uh, U.S., EU, Britain banned transactions with the Russian Central Bank, the Ministry of Finance, the National Wealth Fund. Russian ships banned from docking in British or Canadian ports. The uh, um, let's see, Switzerland adopts EU measure regarding Russian banks access to SWIFT and the assets of prominent wealthy individuals. Um, U.S. bans Russian oil and other energy imports, and that's countrywide. Now you go uh, company-wide, Starbucks suspend all business activity in Russia. Yum, Yum brand parent company of uh, fried chicken chain KFC pausing investment in Russia. McDonald's temporarily closing its uh, restaurants. Shell stop buying Russian crude. Boeing suspended buying any titanium from Russia. Uh, Netflix suspended a service in Russia. Uh, F1 Racing uh, won't won't race in Russia anymore. IKEA closing its doors. PayPal Amex blocking Russian banks from their networks. I mean, this uh, Visa Mastercard blocking Russian banks. So these are the let. I mean, if you, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be you know the average Russian citizen. And to have this amount of sanctions put on you, essentially, it would be like if when we invaded or the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, uh, your credit cards were shut off, your 401k went to zero, you weren't allowed to watch Netflix or buy a Happy Meal. I mean, this is like, uh, uh, you know, a declaration of war on Russia by the U.S. and private companies. And like Paul was just about to say, and we're going to get into, to not expect any kind of blowback or retaliation from Russia is is uh, is very naive. And so, Paul, you know, after I highlighted those sanctions, I mean, w what are your thoughts on this? How does how this blow back on us? And, and will these have any sort of effect on Russia? Well, I mean, it'd be stupid to say they'll have no effect on Russia, of course, but We've got to put this in context. Russia's known since 2014 when the U.S. put sanctions on them over Crimea, etc., and threatened to kick them out of SWIFT in 2014. So they've got their own messaging service, the SPFS, which is hooked into China and hooked into 
We don't know exactly because it's pretty quiet, secret, but countless other nations are, are attached to it. We know that there was a big issue of Visa and MasterCard, not a big problem because Russia has MIR, its own payment credit card system, which millions use, but also it's got a tie-up with Union Pay, which didn't just come about now. That's been in place for quite a long time. So Russians can have Unipay credit cards. So that's a small point. But of course, there's going to be ramifications. If you, you cut a Russian central bank off, it's not it, that that's as bad as it can get. I mean, but the blowback initially on all the sanctions for Russia was the rest of the world's going, hang on. If you're going to do that to Russia, what happens if you suddenly don't like me buying S400s or Maybe there's something we're doing you don't particularly like, like we're trading in non-dollar terms, and you might cut our central bank off, or you might cut our major banks out of SWIFT. Hang on, we need to get out of the dollar rapidly. So it accelerated the precisely the thing the United States is trying to constantly prevent. That's the level of insanity in policy-making decisions just from a dollar perspective. I mean... The, US, the lack of trust in the world outside, okay, there's Europe and and, and then obviously there's Canada and, um, and New Zealand and Australia, but most of the world will not sanction Russia. The global south, they just, they are not it. They're not going to do this because they understand the reality of what is going on. They know because they've suffered, countless nations have suffered through regime change, through um, sanctions. Through, um, through leaders being assassinated, wars fought in their country, all manner of things. This has been going on for decades. So the so-called global south is very distrusting and is already moving into the multipolar world and moving into a world that's post-dollar. They don't want to transact in the dollar. I mean, we've seen recently where India said to Russia, we want to transact in local currencies. Now the US is going, we might sanction, sanction uh, India. They're also threatening to sanction China because China won't sanction Russian companies. I mean, the U.S. is a sanction junkie, and it's got to the point where it's just with zero thought of pride. You start sanctioning China, you've got massive problems, given what well, look, China provides the U.S. market. Okay, there's an argument whether people want a lot of Chinese goods or whatever. It's not the point. You can't replace those markets. You can't. There is this kind of mindset inside the West that we can just cut off this. There's no ramification to us. If you cut off a supply that provides uh, enormous amounts of goods to your country, who's going to provide them instead? That could take years to bring into play. Meanwhile, you don't have those goods. Never mind the ramifications of everything else with China, but let's park China. Go back to Russia. There are some very obvious problems and less obvious problems. One of the major obvious problems is energy. Now, Europe's got an enormous energy problem in terms of natural gas. In one day, natural gas went up 41.5%. So what it could have done and should have done is should have signed the agreement and they could have switched the taps on for Nord Stream 2 and they'd have been paying 280, I think it is, dollars per thousand cubic meters it's currently around three thousand because they went no we're not signing a contract because then we're reliant on you so we're going to buy on the spot market absolute insanity they sanction Nord Stream 2 and as far as I'm concerned I don't think it, 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 the likelihood of it ever being switched on by the Russians is zero there 
So Germany could have had twice the amount of energy at a fraction of the cost. That would have lowered the cost of, of energy. And energy is the lifeblood of a nation. If you don't have energy or energy is enormously inflated in price, it affects every facet of your economy. This is a statement of the obvious. So that's an obvious problem. The other risk is, is Russia's drawn up this list of unfriendly nations, which includes Europe and those who've sanctioned it. Now, I'm not saying Russia will do this, but they could, for argument's sake, just cut off Nord Stream 1. No one even remembers there's a Nord Stream 1. Uh, if they cut that off, Germany and, and Europe are in serious trouble. If they cut off the energy coming through Ukraine, Europe will collapse very rapidly because it has very little energy reserves in storage because it stupidly miscalculated that as well. It already had enormous energy problems because it put all its faith in renewable energy sources, which have completely failed to deliver, unsurprisingly. And this is no shock to anyone who understands that. They closed nuclear power plants down and now they're suddenly backtracking and going, oh, well, we need to switch these back on. We need to... Britain's going, we now need to do shale. shale. We now need to look at shale. And they're all thinking, well, we, we can wean ourselves off Russian energy. It will take them years. It could take them a decade. But they're acting like, well, it's a light switch. We'll just, it's like, you know, I'm just going to pop down to, to the local DIY store and I'm going to buy myself some energy. And it, and it resolves the problem. That's the kind of crude thinking that's gone on. They haven't thought this through. They haven't thought of the counterparty risk of excluding banks. I think suddenly odd people in Germany and the finance ministry are going, hang on, we're suddenly a bit concerned about this. Because they just, they pressed out. They, they didn't think about it because the United States just went, sanctioned them into oblivion. Everyone was too frightened to say no because Biden let the cat out of the bag by going, well, it's sanctions or World War Three. So they just went, okay, we've got to go along with it. Let's just do this. But the blowback hasn't even began to be felt properly in the West because Russia's not actually put any sanctions in place. Europe's now admitted we can't, we've ran out of sanctions. We can't do anymore. This is the limit. We don't want to lose Russian energy. By the way, we don't want to lose Russia's fertile. In fact, we want to keep everything we want to keep because, but, but the other bits, well, we'll just put the sanctions in place. Uh, but by the way, you know, don't move your operations out of Russia just yet. Because once you've gone, you'll never be able to go back. Because once you leave, you can't just, again, press a light switch and go back. Assuming Russia will even allow them to go back. And Russia's now threatening and saying, well, if you leave and you abandon these uh, these headquarters or abandon these uh, you know, whatever corporation it is, we're going to nationalize it. We're just going to take control of it and utilize it. We'll rebrand it. And... The West going, you can't do that. Well, yes, they can, because where do they think all the resources come to sell these products in 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 Russia? They don't come from the West. They come from Southeast Asia. And place that, so Southeast Asia will still provide them with the goods. They'll just rebadge them and sell them in, in the domestic Russian market. So again, complete lack of thinking. Then we come on to the issue of commodities, of which the West is heavily dependent on rare earth metals is one thing. So between Russia and China, they could cut the West off. The West's got enormous problems. There's just simple things like neon. Russia produces 90% of it. You've got a big problem there making semiconductors. 
you have the issue of methanol and derivatives of methanol like hexamine. That's involved in every bit of production, plastics, cosmetics, you name it. Who does provide Europe 50% of that? So if you take that out, you're going to crush the Europe's uh, and by extension, because this doesn't just apply to Europe, but the US, you're going to start massively impacting what's left of their industrial base, which admittedly isn't what it is, because they, of course, deindustrialize so much of the Western world. But you're going to cripple the economy. You risk energy hikes where oil could be $300 a barrel in principle. I mean, at a point when we have huge inflation in Western nations, we have economies that are on their knees, the financial system's creaking extremely badly. And someone actually sat there and went, well, it doesn't matter that Russia has all these commodities that we rely on. It doesn't matter that we rely on them for palladium or aluminium and a whole bunch of other commodities. There's a gigantic list of them, and I'm not going to read them all out because it will, it will be tedious, but there's at least 30, 40 that they're dependent on, and not just Russia, but also China. The other problem is that the West faces, apart from all these unknown factors and all the counterparty risks in the financial system, is they're just basically handing the initiative to China. Because Russia's going to turn around and say to China, well, and China's already kind of saying, well, we might buy bigger stakes in companies, we might buy commodities. Instead of the commodities going west and being priced in dollars or euros, what are they going to do with China? China's going to go, well, we're, we're going to create a whole new commodities market priced in yuan. And global south's going to go, this sounds great to us. It's outside the, the, the purview of the dollar. They can't do anything. It's outside SWIFT. This, this is great. We, we can trade in commodities and it's outside the dollar system. Another just complete lack of thought, a complete lack of any consideration. Well, don't you think Russia might have already thought about sanctions? I mean, before the war, Putin went, well, it doesn't matter whether we invade or we don't. You're going to sanction us anyway. So, okay, there's an argument they didn't expect them to sanction the central bank. Uh, but they expected all the other sanctions to be put in place. So they would have already been thinking about this. And this is absolutely self-destructive behavior by the West. There's, but again, it's this arrogance, it's this ignorance and stupidity where they've just basically gone, well, we're the West. We're the good guys. We always win. So we're going to sanction Russia. Russia and, and I think they genuinely thought if they put these sanctions in, Russia will collapse in two days. Or, or, a, or a few days. Well, that wasn't going to happen. So now the blowback comes, and Russia sat there going, okay, and they're, it's, they're in a very perilous situation. Let's not mince our words. But Russia's more likely to survive than it isn't. And then it's got the support of China and the global south, and, and they can find alternative markets. And they're trying to definitely cut themselves off in totality from the West, and who can blame them? But it's not. It's people going, well, it's the Cold War. Russia's going to collapse. It's communist. It's like it's behaving like it was during the during the the Soviet era. No, it's called the global South. It's called the multipolar world. It's the the vertical growth sectors is in the part of the world that a lot of people in the West don't even seem to understand exists. A lot of Westerners think. Well, the only world that really exists, the only thing that matters is North America, Europe, okay, the UK, because it's not part of Europe, 
and maybe Japan and South Korea and Australia. The rest of the world doesn't exist in their heads. Well, the world's moving on. They are the growth sectors. They are the, where the enormous growth is going to be in the next decade, 20 years. The West is collapsing. The West's economies are, are collapsing. Its financial system's collapsing. I mean, this is self-evident. Anyone who understands anything that's gone on since 2008 knows this to be true. So there's all this misconception in the West. You have all these politicians who think Russia is still the Soviet Union from the 1980s, which it isn't. They think China's still like it was in the 1970s. My goodness, it's not. And they think the United States is this nation that, is, that it's the 1980s when it was the dominant superpower. Uh, any shadow of a doubt. But this is 30, 40, 50 years later. The world's a very different place and the United States is not economically strong anymore. I mean, look at it. It runs massive budget deficits, massive trade deficits. It's printed the dollar into oblivion, trillions and trillions of dollars since the pandemic started. No one's buying U.S. debt anymore, contrary to conventional wisdom. And now currently, I mean, what are we seeing? We've got a war on. And the, I mean, this week alone, massive treasury dumping going on from across the spectrum from the one year to the 30 year. There isn't any appetite to hold treasuries or to hold the dollar. We, we didn't see a gigantic spike, which you would have expected during a war. Because traditionally, if this had been 20 years ago, I mean, I'm not a fan of the dollar index, but the dollar index would have been, what, 110, 120? It's not even at 100. There isn't the appetite for the dollar because the United States has weaponized the dollar to the point of destruction, and the world has had enough of it. And the idea that, just because the West is stood behind the United States with regards to uh, sanctioning and everything. But there's going to come a point where if this war doesn't end favorably for the West and Russia's still standing and the West economies are cratering even more, you might start to get a bit of dissension in Europe who are going to turn around to the United States and go, hang on a minute, you railroaded us into sanctions You've made us put these policy decisions in place and nothing's turned out. In fact, we're suffering even greater inflation. I mean, and and we're seeing inflation data coming out of Europe. That's absolutely unbelievable. When we look at PPI came out of Italy today, 41.8% year on year. 12.8% month on month. I mean, this is astonishing. And, it, and you cannot... Con absorb that producer price inflation eventually that is going to end up in well cpi is garbage anyway in reality but it's going to end up hitting us directly they're going to have to put all this cost into all the goods and services that we buy now if you're waging sanctions against russia and you need commodities you need energy this is only going to make things infinitely worse so again no thought whatsoever applied to this and in many senses, the U.S. is going well. Europe's suffering the brunt of this. They're going to, they're going to. But the U.S. is also going to suffer. But reputationally, this is going to cause enormous damage to the U.S. because the world's going to go, and and Europe suffers. The world will be looking at this, going, get out of the dollar, get out of euro, get out, and uh, and look at Russia. They've gone. Do you know what? I mean, this all this idea we need to keep printing dollars because we have to keep. 
managing dollar-denominated debt. Well, Russia's come out and gone, well, we're not doing that. In fact, if we're going to pay you, we'll pay you in rubles, which effectively means we're defaulting. We don't care. We're, we, we're going to default on the debt because we really don't care anymore. You've sanctioned us. So, yeah, credit agencies can, you know, put us in junk status. Who cares? Because we're not going to function in your financial system anymore. We're not part of SWIFT. And the irony is, is the consequences of the actions of Russia. Okay, this is debatable. It's kind of a, a race to the bottom for what's happening in, in Europe and the United States and the West. But if the global South acts quickly enough and goes through a massive de-dollarization phase and gets out of the SWIFT system, moves assets into a new financial system that China and Russia have, and they can do it fast enough. When the West inevitably blows up economically and financially, they will not feel the pain anywhere near because they won't be directly part of that. So they can function independently. People go, that's impossible. They couldn't do that. But if you're not part of the Western financial system, you don't you 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 don't have dollar denominated debt problems or euro denominated debt. Admit that's a really complicated process. But Russia approved. Well, we're not going to settle it. You've kicked us out. Fine. We'll just default on what four five hundred billion dollars of of de- a dollar and euro denominated debt. And the West went well. We we. Oh, hang on, we didn't think this through. Well, what's the counterparty risk in that? Who's that going to impact? Is that going to impact banks, corporations, hedge funds? The list goes on. They haven't thought of the consequences of this. And the other point worth making is people have said, oh, Putin went into Ukraine to to destroy the dollar. Absolutely not. The consequences of the Western action is to massively impact the dollar going forward. His objectives are what we said at the start, was to protect the security of Russia, the Russian people, and the threats they perceive to exist in Ukraine. That's the big difference, because this idea that there's some 4D chess game going on in terms of taking the dollar out, Russia is never going to put itself in the position it's in now to play, pardon the pun, Russian roulette, with its own financial system, its economy, and its people. That's just not how... The Russian way of thinking is, but the consequences are there is now a blowback to the West. And at the moment, until they implement sanctions and the full effect of unilateral sanctions as they stand uh, from the West, uh, what they've uh, obviously put in place, we don't know the fallout. But we're already seeing crazy gyrations in credit markets indications of interbank lending problems in in the west we're also seeing huge volatility in the energy markets we're seeing enormous volatility i mean look at you know what's happened in with nickel at the lme i mean there's a whole bunch of problems happening and i don't believe it's it's coincidental that it's happened because of the uh, as a byproduct of what's happening with in the ukraine war not entirely because we know all these problems already existed but what they've basically done is thrown petrol on a fire and they don't know the consequences of what the fallout will be and we're not here to discuss all the economic implications because that takes too long but in a broad sense the west has no idea the consequences of implementing these sanctions what 
the counterparty risk is, what the knock-on effects are, how Russia could cripple them in terms of commodities and energy, and what does that mean to economies that are already, as we know, in serious trouble with very high persistent inflation, with certainly it's beginning to impact industry. There's industrial sectors having to, to mothball because ra- ramping energy costs. I mean, if you were sat there as a business in Europe going, well, we're having big enough problems with energy. Oh, hang on a minute. Our insane governments have now sanctioned Russia, which means we could have had double the energy, but next week we may have no energy. I mean, this is the level that businesses are looking at this going, hang on, what the hell are you doing? You're actually risking the lifeblood of the economies of, of the of the Western world. And there's another point worth making. This is not being done deliberately. There's all this kind of mythical idea out there. They're deliberately crashing the West. It's It's intentional. And then they're going to roll out this whole new thing. Well... If you understood what happened in 2008, and I was in the middle of it in 2008, I knew what was happening in 06 and 07 because I worked in the financial sector. And if you knew what happened in the immediate aftermath of of Lehman and what happened through 2009, 10 and so on, I can categorically assure you they would, they were didn't have a clue what happened in 2008. I'm not going to use expletives, but they were panic-stricken. And they have done everything for the last over a decade to try and prevent the Western financial system collapsing. And yet there's people out there going, well, no, now they've suddenly decided they're going to deliberately collapse it. When the Western financial system collapses and it's the end of the dollar, it's the end of the empire in the West. It's gone. And that's why throughout history, they've done everything to defend the dollar, removing Saddam Hussein, removing Gaddafi fighting endless wars, all to protect the dollar because the dollar's a matter of national security. They're not going to relinquish that as a matter of national security, throw it under the bus and go, well, we spent all these decades defending it and now we're going to give it up because apparently we're, we're, we're going to somehow magically roll something new and sinister out that's going to control the world. When, by the way, Russia's fighting a war with the West, which proves Russia's not part of this and By the way, are you aware of the multipolar world and the developments in the last particularly five years, but a bit longer and to a decade? Do you know what's happening in the rest of the world where everyone's moving on from the failed unipolar world, which was one world governance? Unipolar means precisely that. It was an experiment. They started at the end of World War II and it dead and buried. It failed. It's never succeeded. And Paul, so, you know, to, to harp on some of this, you know, I think this is already starting. I mean, there's I have some articles pulled up that says that Saudi Arabia and the UAE said they won't answer Biden's phone calls um, when he was calling on them to produce more energy. Um, they said they don't want anything to do with it and they're not going to produce more oil for us. Um, uh, you know, Russia just banned. Uh, all sugar and grain exports to the EU, which is going to severely increase inflation, increase um, you know the price of food and commodities and things like that. This morning's report from the U.S. and this is probably before the ripple effect from sanctions started: seven point nine percent inflation rate. And now you know I see that the, the blames already shifting towards U.S. oil companies um, when it's like no, it's obvious why 
energy is so expensive, why oil is so expensive is because you're cutting off a huge portion of the su- supply. And so, um, you know, and you know this in 1999, when um, the Soviet Union had its uh, debt devaluation and basically defaulted on its debt, that was basically the pin that pricked uh, long term capital management um, explosion. And so are, are you do you think that we're facing kind of a 2008 scenario here with uh, these sanctions and the proverbial, you know, blowback and all these derivatives markets? I mean, do you think we're, we're facing a, a, an economic crash, uh, a stock market crash here? Well, I think it's worse than 2008 because, I mean, look at look at the difference in 2008. We had kind of prior to 2008, we didn't have all this. We didn't have QE and zero interest rate policy. We, we didn't have this massive indebtedness problem that we do now. We didn't have all the fundamental problems we have in economies now, which was caused in part, I mean, you know, what we, we're not going to have a big history lesson, but in very broad terms, we had all this m- massive inflation since 2008 that people said didn't exist, except we know where it was. It's in equity markets. It's in bond markets. It was in housing markets it was in financial assets this enormous bubble which is totally unsustainable and then we had the pandemic and then the problem became a massive problem in main street that's why we're now getting huge inflation as well in main street okay it's not a simple question of just printing lots of money there is also the issue of supply chain issues which is aggravating the problem but fundamentally the situation in 2008 was was a banking problem and an enormous banking problem which had been in coming into fruition for years that's why in 2006 i sat in a meeting when the western financial system is going to collapse i can't tell you where and everyone laughed and went don't be ridiculous we're not you know this isn't zimbabwe this is just not possible this is rubbish but anyway of course it happened but it was a banking problem predominantly not exactly but predominantly in 2008 here's the difference today it's an everything problem it's it's i mean it's it's a, an enormous financial problem that's engulfed every aspect not just bank it's an enormous economic problem it's an enormous debt problem it's an enormous lack of confidence in the dollar and 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 fiat currency the list goes on it's just an everything problem so it's infinitely worse than 2008 and at some point, there is going to be the, the blowouts coming. I mean, and when that happens, it's it's not time driven. I always I always use these, these statements on my own podcast and in other interviews. Everything in the world's event driven. The Ukraine war is an event driven scenario. It's it's had a huge amount of effects, and there's going to be an enormous amount of catalytic blowback and fallout because of the the war happening. Okay, it's not something anyone was aware of but there's a lot of events happening that are following a particular kind of course i mean the multipolar world the disintegration of the unipolar world failed qe zero interest rate policy all those things but there is an inevitability and i made the point prior to even last year i was going the us is behaving like the western financial systems collapsing and for me, the Ukraine war was an indication. The U.S. getting involved in, and they do have culpability for this war. 
is not all down to Russia. So the US is prepared to go to the edge of oblivion, potentially, and I don't think we'll have World War Three. but the risk was it could have happened over a country thousands of miles from home that has no real, apart from strategic advantage, then they're not, they do that because they're out of desperation. They're not doing, this was in normal times where the US dollar was reigning supreme and the US economy was ticking over nicely, etc. We wouldn't have had this situation. They're doing it now because, and it's like China and Taiwan, and um, because the US financial system and the US economy and by extension, same with Europe, etc., is in dire straits. We have enormous problems, and you can't fix the Western financial system. And I'll use a very crude analogy, but hopefully it explains why. Effectively, the Western financial system is legacy built on legacy built on legacy. And it's like we have a billion pieces of string all interwoven. Now, we can't. We don't know what the effect of pulling one of those pieces of string are in terms of counterparty risk or any of the problems it may create. Even if we can unravel them, we have no comprehension anymore of what the consequences of anything to do with the financial system. And I've made tweets about the ESF, the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which is is kind of protects everything, but principally the dollar. And the ESF's clearly pumping markets. To in and not just the US, but across Europe, across the UK, etc., to prevent the Western uh, you know, markets collapsing, which is why you see. And I made a tweet saying, if oil gets over one thirty dollars a barrel, the West, the Western financial system is going to have enormous problems. Why? Because of derivatives, and it's not just oil derivatives, and it's not just the economy that's going to be crippled with high oil prices. Because the derivatives complex is immensely complicated. It's not just, well, I'm long on this and you're short on this. It's, you know, it's like there's a whole string of 20 transactions, all using derivatives, all intertwined, all with counterparty risk. And if one part of that process fails, the whole lot fails and it could, and it could obliterate 10 or 20 institutions on if you extrapolate that, not just on a single tra- tra- transaction. That's how complicated the West is. That's how complicated like uh, the derivatives market is. So what happened? Oil hits 130, gets smashed 10% yesterday. There was clearly problems in the European banks. No surprise. The share price is cratering. They're trying to prop it up. They try and prop up equity markets all the time. Don't care whether people believe it or not, but they're constantly smashing gold and silver markets. So they're constantly trying to manage a thousand spinning plates to use an analogy and keep them all going to prevent the whole thing collapsing. And that costs a huge amount of money. And that's money that's just printed out of nowhere. And it's just stuffed into markets to prop everything up. And this has been going on increasingly since 2008. Not so much in the early days, but certainly in the last few years, constantly propping up equity markets because the economy is the is the is equity markets now, and and if equity markets started cratering, what would happen? You would have this problem where individual companies share price get decimated. Then they start maybe hitting debt covenants. They get downgraded, um, and if they get debt downgrade, what does that mean? If they're fallen angels and they become junk status, that can completely derail derail an institution because the whole West is just 
It's just debt. And it is only surviving on just mountains of debt. I mean, we saw issues during the pandemic where companies in Chapter 11, there was, there was bond sales. Who the hell buys bonds in a company that's in Chapter 11? And, but this is because it's just debt-fueled. The only thing that's stopping the West collapsing, if you, if you switched off the debt, the West would collapse in the blink of an eye. And I made the point, if you flipped it and, and you were sanctioning the West, the way Russia's been sanctioned, the West would last six or eight hours and it would collapse if you'd sanction them the way Russia's been sanctioned. And because it's just totally unsustainable. So no, there's no magic solution. There's no way out of this. You can't fix the Western financial system because no one knows how to fix it. It's completely out of control. There's, it's, there's elements in it that are totally opaque. No one has any understanding. And if you build legacy on top of legacy and you and you allow wanton speculation, you, you can't fix it because you might pull a piece of string that blows everything up. And the risk now is it's becoming more and more precarious how they can prevent things collapsing. So they're more likely to make some horrendous mistake in doing so. Uh, and people say, well, they can just keep printing money and propping on it. You can't do this. It's, it's just totally unsustainable. And therefore, it's just a matter of time rather than when, uh, or sorry, it's when rather than if, when the Western financial system implodes. And we, yeah. hang on, I thought I'd lost you for a second. Well, maybe I have. No, I'm here, Paul. I can hear you. Uh, what I was going to say was, um, okay, so if that's true, and I, you know, I live in the West, so I, I obviously hope it's not, but I inevitably feel uh, that you're correct here. Um what can people do to protect themselves, if anything? I mean, if we know this information, um, you know, what can we do to help help ourselves? Well, I mean, I, I'm i not trying to be sensationalistic about this, but we know, I think everybody would agree, that we have an energy and a food crisis in the making in the West. It's It's a statement of the obvious. We've seen, you know, the amount of, you think it's, that if you were to cut off wheat supplies from, from Russia and Ukraine, you're going to have major problems. And Ukraine's already saying we're not exporting a whole bunch of like buckwheat and millet and rye, etc. already. Now, okay, that's war related, but, you know, if you don't have fertilizer, you're not going to produce crops. So the risk is we have an energy crisis and we have a potential food crisis in the, in the West in the future. So, there's an argument, how severe could that be? We don't know. I mean, and therefore, I'm not trying to be sensationalistic, but I think it's advisable to have non-perishable food as a, you know, just as a safeguard for a number of weeks. If you can do that, I think you need to 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 be on work on the basis that there could be interruptions in the banking system. I don't think that's unreasonable at all to say that. So I don't know how whether cash, how well cash would function in a failed banking system, but maybe have some some cash at hand. Maybe if I mean, okay, everyone's circumstances are different, but you know, take some precaution of the worst case scenario. If it doesn't happen, great, and then you can just go, well, I've got all non-perishable food. I'll eat it eventually anyway. So who cares? And maybe essential items, and that's the other thing: price inflation. I mean, we all know that if you buy things six months ago a lot of times it's a lot cheaper so 
That's the other risk is you get a crisis in confidence in the currency, and that's when you get hyperinflation. At the moment, we're not in hyperinflationary territory, but if people start panicking and seeing price rises, they'll start spending the money and buying stuff because they think next week or next month it'll be more expensive. Okay, that's a separate issue, but we're not in that territory, but that's a risk. So buy essential items if you can. Uh, things like, okay, toilet paper is an obvious one. I'm trying to get into the territory where everyone was, well, a lot of people were, you know, I remember going into the supermarket in the, when the pandemic started and there was no, there was no loo roll at all. But anyway, just things like that. Okay. I'm not, I don't offer financial advice. That's not what I do, but if you can afford to, and okay. And that's depends on people's individual circumstances. You need to protect your wealth. We talked about this previously. I mean, so I can only say what I've done. I own gold and silver. I mean, that's everyone knows that. Who knows me? And that's a protection against all eventualities and to preserve your wealth. And that's that's my perspective. But try to be as prepared as you can because we 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 don't know what specifically could happen. We could be sat here one day. And you could arguably say we have a layman moment again and, and they'll just print trillions of dollars and bail everything out. Well, or the alternative, it could be far more severe, but we can't dismiss the reality that there is something coming and it will be worse than 2008 because the financial economic climate and everything is far worse than, than it was in 2008. As I said, it was a banking problem then. Now it's an everything problem. So I think... We need to make take some measures to try and protect ourselves and, and food and energy security are obvious ones. Okay, in the Northern Hemisphere, we're coming into, well, we are kind of in spring now, we're going into summer. So it's less of a problem from, from a heating perspective. But, you know, if there are food shortages, and we're seeing nations hoarding food now, they're not exporting things, then there, there is there is going to be a risk and we, we can't say the severity of that risk but i think just to sit there and go well that's not going to be a problem is not a wise decision to make so you can make some provision i would do that but i'm not over egging this i'm not trying to sensationalize things i don't do sensationalism but i think it's prudent and i think it's a reasonable thing to say to be prudent and be aware that we are seeing things unfolding this is not me speculating there's going to be an energy and food crisis because it's now here i mean energy crisis is self-evident food is becoming a problem and you know if russia stops exporting commodities to the to the west then that's going to have ramifications if nations start hoarding grain i mean we we've heard hungary's hoarding grain um i think i can't remember serbia's not exporting certain things like that there's Already nations are starting to go, well, we have to look after our own interests, so we're not going to export these things. So those nations dependent on those exports, what are they going to do? They they risk having enormous problems, and I don't think we should just sit there and blindly go, well, that's not our problem. You know, this isn't going to happen because, because I'm in the United States or I'm in the UK or wherever. Or the, in the Western world we live, we have to start to take this seriously because we do have serious problems. And, of course, these sanctions is is introduced an extra dimension which, which poses significant risks to us. And that is, I don't think that's sensationalistic at all. And, and Paul, you know, this kind of wrapping up here and, you know, the last thing I'll ask you, um, you know, you've been right on 
a lot of things so far, this Russia situation. I mean, we called it pretty, uh, pretty spot on when a lot of people couldn't even find uh, Ukraine on the map, right? And it's, to me, it's the, what's most shocking is how it went from, you know, the average person saying, what is Ukraine to now we need a war with Russia over Ukraine. And, and, and these, you know, the same people, the same policymakers, the same people that are observing this are all saying, oh, we should just sanction Russia into oblivion to take them out. And it won't really affect me in the West. Maybe I'll have to pay a little bit more for gasoline. Um, I don't think they're understanding the full ramifications of of, of what's going on. And I'm just, I, I question, you know, who is making these decisions and who's who is supporting them. Um, but the last thing I want to ask you really is just, um, you know, very briefly is what do you see uh, as, you know, the proverbial next domino? I mean, what do you see as happening next? I mean, I, I, my assumption is that within a week or two, Ukraine will likely fall. I mean, Kiev's already surrounded, like you mentioned, Maripol, uh, Kharkiv. Um, but the question that I think a lot of people are asking justly is, well, what comes next? I mean, does a does a, a leader in Ukraine who wants peace step up, steps up and takes over for Zelensky? Does Zelensky flee? I mean, how? what do you think? And, and you know, we're obviously just predicting here, but what do you think happened? Well, one way or the other, hopefully the war ends yesterday. That's the first point. What happens politically inside Ukraine depends largely on the future of Ukraine. I don't see Ukraine surviving as a nation, despite all statements. You know, it's just not feasible. There's too much sort of uh, water under the bridge or whatever we want to refer to. It's just it's just way too complicated for this. So there needs to be a solution reached that gives Russia security and equally gives Ukraine security. That they don't think I'm a, five minutes later Russia could be back in invading and we'll have a war again. There needs to be an amicable solution. It also has to have some safeguards in it. But this, you know, from Russia's perspective, you'd say, well, if we're signing this agreement, it's on the basis that, you know, sanctions end, for example. Or I mean, it's an immensely complicated problem. But stop the war, start to find a resolution and, and a deal with the fundamental issues inside Ukraine. Um, but you can guarantee, even if there was, that the, the sanctions will be in place for months and months. And in the process, there's all this unquantifiable risk it's putting on the West. Uh, also, the risks it poses to, China, to to Russia, and therefore Russia's going to more and more, or the risk is Russia will put more and more um, sort of onerous sanctions on the West. It's not going to go in like the West for, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at it. It'll be more measured in how it does things. It will assess things and go, okay, how are we going to impact the West in ways that's going to hurt them? But we're not going to do things that might blow up in our face as well. We've got enough internal problems to deal with. But, uh, but the point is that at the end of this, um, there is far bigger questions with regards to NATO, with regards to the U.S.'s role in Europe with regards to settling, finding a, a, a long-term solution that, that is viable and doesn't just say, you know, well, we've signed an agreement and two months later someone's violating it already. I mean, how do you deal with the whole issue of the far right in, in Ukraine? Okay, Russia said they want denazification, and what does that mean in reality? If you have a peace agreement tomorrow, how do you denazify what's left of the country? I mean, 
it's, it's an immensely difficult problem of the backdrop to Ukraine is the the impact on the West, which has already got enormous problems. I mean, it, before the Ukraine war, inflation was a problem. Energy was a problem. We started to have indications. I mean, I've spoken for several years about a food crisis in the making of food security in the West and across the world and how we need to guard against this. And and so there's all these problems in in the mix as well. And they they're totally in interdependent. But they're not. They're, but also, the West is having its own problems, irrespective of the fallout of the the sanctions and what sanctions Russia puts on the West. But also the blowback from their own sanctions. So it's it's immensely complicated. It's it's very difficult. I mean, I've I've gone from assessing things in 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 real time, but able to be a bit more sort of measured and pragmatic about well okay we're seeing this and we envisage this in the future and here's a great an important development today and it means this in the context of going forward it's like we're almost war correspondents and in in terms of everything that that means and we're having to i'm having to now react on a daily basis to look at things okay this is how what does this mean uh etc etc so it's it's immensely more challenging to 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 be able i mean to be able to make you know, accurate assessments. There's too many moving parts to this at the moment, but hopefully get a solution, end the war, get a solution for Ukraine and start to deal with far bigger problems. But the West, the way it's proceeding at the moment, it's not going to, even if they ended sanctions, the war stopped, the West is not going to resolve. It's it's gone down this irrevocable path of, of, economic financial destruction and it's not going to resolve those problems by ending the war and ending sanctions because if you've moved your company's operations out of russia like you say well what's going to happen you can't just go back to russia and go hello can we come back russia will go uh no um and even if they do it takes months it could take six months you can walk out in five minutes but you can't walk back in in five minutes and if you put sanctions in place it sets off a whole catalytic effect and systemic problems and uh, unintended consequences, and you can't ma- you can't unravel that just by going well. Let's just start, you know, exporting things again. And then there's the trust aspect. I think the US has damaged its trust, probably to the global south irreparably. But even with its allies, if it basically threatened Europe into sanctions or World War Three. And things don't pan out. There's then you're going to the rift is going to start growing between the US and, and NATO nations. So, in a roundabout way, we're explaining the complexity of the of what's going on. There's many moving parts. There's many facets to this. And at the moment, there's a huge degree of uncertainty about the outcome of many things. But in reality, the war isn't going to cause the collapse of the West. This is a consequence of years of very poor policy decisions, economically, financially, in terms of from how you how you deindustrialize nations. And for me, the West was in had serious problems, but the really the the nail in the coffin lid that really accelerated the demise of the West was the financialization. Of Western economies, which the UK and the US, this was Thatcher Reagan in the 80s, huge mistake, massive mistake, because it led ultimately to 2008. And what's happened since 2008? 
and it moved the emphasis away from we actually need to produce things. We need to generate wealth. We need to not the idea, well, we'll create all this wealth in the financial system. And then miraculously, some of this wealth will trickle down into the real economy and everyone will benefit. Absolute nonsense. It would never work and it would never would work. There isn't this trickle down effect. So they've destroyed the real economy and we don't have wealth generation. It's not like I take a dollar or a pound now and I'm effectively creating $10 or £10 of wealth. We just take that dollar, spend it and recycle it into oblivion with producing nothing. And eventually the dollar has just dis disappeared because you can't buy something for a dollar. Let's just say, okay, let's just say $10. I go into, into Starbucks, I spend $10. <clears throat> and where's the wealth generation? You spend it. They've obviously had to, okay, there's an argument that they're making some profit, but then they have to buy goods from elsewhere. They're not producing those goods. So in the end, and eventually they have to provide, pay their providers, uh, whoever they source their materials from, you know, coffee, tea, whatever else. And then, and then, then eventually they, well, in principle, at least submit tax return. They have to pay tax. We pay tax on the money and eventually. All that taxation revenue is totally wasted and doesn't produce anything because basically it's paying for, um, in the US, the military budget of $750 billion a year, for example, which is of no value to the United States. So you're just consuming money and producing nothing of wealth or of value. And for me, the financialization of the economy was that moment where we completely got it wrong. And Paul, uh, you know, that uh, that's uh, one of the things that, you know, we agree on that we worry about. Um, you know, it's a it's a different perspective than a lot of people have. A lot of people think that, you know, it couldn't happen here. Nothing bad is going to happen. Maybe they'll pay a little bit more at the pump. I don't think they're they're realizing uh, the ramifications of this. And, and, you know, hopefully they're making the proper savings and investment uh, choices, um, you know, based on this information. But um if people want to know more and learn more from you, how can they get in contact with you? Okay. Well, we have the website, the serious report.com. Um, we have a subscription service for $4.75 a month. Uh, you can get 11 months for the price of 12. If you subscribe for a year, we've got nearly 1400 podcasts and they're extremely detailed. And we've, catalog all the major developments economically financially geopolitically for years and i'm not blowing our own trumpet but we have an extremely high success rate some people have got in touch because we put tweets out saying this will happen and then it's i mean i mentioned on twitter in the past that ukraine was the final nail in u.s germany and the u.s dollar and look at where we are today so that's what we do. I think we think it's very good value for money. And, and we only went subscription-based because we had no choice because we got demonetized. I remember putting stuff on YouTube, and in 15 minutes, they demonetized us. Not three months, six months. So we went subscription-based. We keep it cheap. And we've never put the price up because we think it should be affordable for everyone. And obviously, we're very active on Twitter at the Serious Report. Um, Incredibly, it's it's one of those really bitter ironies for me that we we've suddenly gained enormous popularity because of a war. I mean, 
we've now got nearly well getting on for 12,900 followers that's gone up 40 50 percent in the last month or so i mean and not because we're doing anything differently but anyway it's happened for whatever reason and uh, and obviously we're very active on there and we throw ideas out that some people will like some people will find them awful and some people might not be sure about it but the end of the day, I, contrary to what a lot of people say, I don't take sides. I people go, well, you, you know, I make comment. Lavrov said something. I'm just stating what he said, or Putin says to me, or Xi says to me. This is about us explaining what's happening in the world, how the world's changing, how Russia and China are making these decisions. And I go back to my point. I'm not anti-Western. I try to advise people in 2006 what was going to happen in 2008 <clears throat> i warned against qe zero interest rate policy i warned against all manner of things and no one in governments listened i tried to warn them about the multipolar world and that china and russia posed i won't call it a threat but you have to take it seriously and they all went don't be ridiculous those nations are nothing nations they'll always be nothing nations you're living in a fantasy world. The multipolar world, don't be ridiculous. People didn't believe it. Well, you know, I so, I mean, if the West had listened to my podcast, they would have understood what China was doing. They would have understood what Russia was doing, what was going on, how the world was de-dollarizing. People didn't take it seriously. I mean, so I'm just cataloging things. And, and at the end of the day, if you have a binary thought process, they're like you said, Russell, it's, Russia bad, Ukraine good, West good, then of course you're not going to appreciate it. But there's all nuance in everything I'm saying. It's not a matter of defending anything. The world's changing. This is reality. And we need to deal with that reality and understand what that means. And it doesn't mean China and Russia are going to take the world over and impose totalitarian governments on it. Absolutely not. But what does it mean in reality? How is that going to affect us in the West? And the West should have made far better choices. And it made extremely bad choices. And the fact that I'm savaging them is because they're making those bad choices. And they're making bad decisions. And sadly, that will impact on all of us. Whether I'm in the US, the UK, Europe, or anywhere else. And that's ultimately what I care about. So if I say... You know, Putin says the unipolar world never existed and it's dead. It's true. This is that, 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 whether we, whether Putin says it, it doesn't matter. It's a statement of fact. Or, well, you know, the the Russia says these statements, or the West is behaving a certain way. The one thing is, at the end of the day, is the Ukraine war. There's culpability on both sides. It is not a straightforward thing. The, the West has been goading Russia for years. Should Russia have avoided the war? Yes, but from the Russian perspective, and you can see there are clear indications why they've done it. But that doesn't mean we agree with it. We're just saying this is why Russia's done it. It's, it's not defending them. I don't want Russia to kill any Ukrainians. I don't want any Ukrainians to kill any Russians. Absolutely not. I wish no wars were ever fought. We're in the 21st century. We shouldn't have wars. But just because there's a war doesn't mean that the person who invaded, it's all their problem. And it is, and it's very complex. And 
in the West, we need to understand this and we need to not fall for Western propaganda. And here's the bottom line. We went to war in Iraq based on lies. There were no weapons of mass destruction. Over a million Iraqis died. Many more disfigured due to white phosphorus, etc. They've had to deal with horrendous problems internally thanks to that war. So they lied about that and went to war on a basis of total lies. So we need to start asking ourselves, are they ever, when do they tell us the truth? When, what, when, I mean, why did we allow Gaddafi if he was what the West told us, wasn't he had to go? Why did we let him stay in power for over 40 years? Why did we let Saddam Hussein stay in power and then decide he had to go? We need to think more about, and it's like Maduro. Maduro, the, you know, the Americans, <laughs> they proclaimed Guaido as the president. They wanted him out. They tried everything to remove Maduro. Now, they roll up in, in uh, Caracas with a begging bowl going, please, please, Maduro, we'll remove all the sanctions. Yeah, you're not about, you're off the naughty step now. You're a good guy because we want your oil. And the reason we want your oil is because remember we sanctioned you and you, you couldn't give us the oil and we had to go to the Russians and get it instead. Well, the rules of the game have changed now. It's you're in you're back in favor. So we want to sanction Russia now. So please can we have your oil instead? And and Westerners need to go what and understand the, the hypocrisy of that and why clearly Maduro isn't a problem until he becomes a problem because the US doesn't like something he's doing. But when suddenly they think, well, he's back, you know, he's back in favor because he can help us out, then all the rules have changed. Well, nothing's changed. The U.S. lied in the first place about Maduro, and now they're trying to unravel the lies and then go because we, we need him back in favor. That's how U.S. foreign policy works. And there is no one who can defend that, and it's indefensible. And ultimately, the consequences of all this action, whether it's domestic policy, foreign policy, and where we are today in 2022 and where it's going in the future, we're the ones, us, the people, who are going to suffer the consequences of this. And that is why it's reprehensible and why we need to challenge it and not sit there and just go, well, anything the West does is correct because it's not. And ultimately, because of all these endless foreign policy decisions, the West is suffering not just a blowback from Russian sanctions, but the world has got to the point when it said we've had enough of US and Germany. And it's attack dog, attack dog, NATO allies, etc. We're sick of it all. And the consequences are that we're going to suffer the consequences of all these policy decisions. So instead of us cheerleading, marching illegally into Iraq or cheerleading whatever we say we're doing, we need to start saying, no, we don't, we don't accept that. And we've had enough of it. And we want whatever the differences we have. It's the 21st century. Well, we don't agree with Russia. We might not agree with China, but we, we're going to have to actually behave like adults and resolve things amicably instead of this attitude that it's my way or the highway, we're always right. And even if we do the things we're accusing another nation of, it doesn't apply to us because we're the exceptional nation. It was inevitable if you abuse the dollar and you abuse your position as an hegemonic power, there is always going to come a point 
well, that's going to blow up in your face. And, we're, and sadly, we're in 2022, and that's where we are now. And Paul, um, yeah, I, I want to just, uh, you know, close out and harp on that. You know, uh, what you said was very, very uh, important is that we can't just look at these things through the lens of USA, West good, Russia bad. You know, we have to be critical thinkers. We have to sift through our information. We, you know, and I think a lot of Americans do agree with that. I mean, I think that's the reason Trump got elected was mostly because of his stance of not wanting to be, you know, the world police, not wanting to be involved in these conflicts, you know, America first and all that stuff. And I think that is probably the main reason he was elected because Americans could see that this was a bad policy to have and that getting involved in these foreign entanglements is just not uh, sustainable on the, on the long term. And, and, you know, Mm -hmm. Seeing this on Twitter, you know, anytime I post anything that doesn't fall within the narrative of, you know, Russia bad, Ukraine good, West good, we need to go to war with Russia. I get all kinds of uh, hate, people calling me a Kremlin troll, people calling me unpatriotic, you know, all kinds of things. And so I hope that, um, you know, people can, can, can step out of this bubble and just think for a second and, and step back and realize you know, what's really going on and, 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 you know, they can have different opinions, but you have to consider both, uh, you know, both sides of this and you have to diversify where you get your information from. And so Paul, it's been, um, a pleasure having you on. I always love your perspective. If you want to reach out to Paul, uh, his Twitter is at the serious report. Uh, you could also go to his website, the serious sign up for his podcast and his newsletters. I mean, he's been discussing this stuff before it was on the radar of, uh, of most people. And so if you want to know kind of what's going on and a breakdown of, of how these things are playing out, definitely go and check it out. Paul, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you so much. No, likewise. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And, you know, it's the old thing from acorns, oak trees are grown. And we, we just need to think things differently in the West and not, it's not like defending one side or the other. Don't take the extreme view. Just sit in the middle, observe what's going on, and going, look, this is happening in the East. This is what's going on. This is going to impact the West. What can we do? Can we? Are we going to go to war with them? Are we going to sanction them? Are we going to have regime change? Or are we going to be adults at the table and go, okay, the world is changing. How can we make the United States a great nation amongst equals, a nation respected on the world stage, a nation that harnesses all the talent and ability that exists in that country and makes it, because if the US was like this, the US would be an infinitely better country for everyone and the sum of the parts of the world would be infinitely greater and that's what we need to be striving towards. So I want to see a great America amongst equals. But we're nowhere near that. And at the moment there's there's no one in 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 the Beltway who even well there might be some who'd like to see that happen, but no one's there's no one gonna stick their head above the parapet and say it and the vast majority it's abhorrent to them. We can't surrender our hegemony and our exceptionalism. That's not possible because it's it's hardwired into their DNA. But it's not the future and they're gonna some point there's going to be a painful realignment, but a great America amongst equals, I think that's a good point to end this on because I'm not an American, but my goodness, I would love to see that happen. 
Paul, thank you so much. Everyone, all my listeners, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. You maybe seen a different perspective of things. And <clears throat> excuse me, if you want to reach out to me, my Twitter my Twitter handle is at retirement right. Um, you could also reach out to me. Um, you know, I have a newsletter where I put a lot of these uh, thoughts from the podcast in writing and, and provide charts and things like that. It's the warrenletter.substack.com. Again, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, um, I'll see you on Twitter. Bye, everyone. Yeah, goodbye.